Welcome to the Park City Podcast, a podcast created by Park City Church to discuss who God is and how he is at work in our lives. I'm your host, David Morelli. Welcome back to the Park City Podcast. My name is David Morelli, and as always, I'm joined by my friend, Phil Schomber. Phil, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? Well, you know, the funny thing about this is my favorite superhero doesn't really actually have any of his own superpowers. I'm a fan of uh, Iron Man, and really he just has a suit that he built that has some cool um, tools and and things like that. Uh, But I I think it would be uh, nice to have the power to travel through time. I'm not, I'm not sure what, how I would use that for good, uh, but it would be, you know, interesting to be able to, uh, you know, bop around time and, and, and see what's going on. So, uh, I, other than that, I don't have any, any great reason why I would like to do that. Sure. Yeah. I think mine would be to fly. I think it'd be really fun to be able to do that. Plus I'm not, I don't love flying in planes wouldn't wouldn't call myself a super anxious flyer though i do uh you know my wife would would tell you that i i do get a little nervous and i i really just don't like turbulence um that's really the the you know like roller coasters or anything like that so any sort of turbulence then my stomach starts starts to churn and that's just not a good thing but i think if i was flying myself i think that would be a, a very smooth thing i don't know if my fear of heights would then kick in so you know maybe this isn't really a maybe that wouldn't be the best best superpower as i'm as i'm thinking about it but uh maybe with a a, a, a ability to fly that you know a fear of heights just kind of goes away i don't know i, I think that would make a great movie though that a, a superhero it? that has the power of flight but is afraid to fly because he's afraid of heights i there think that go. would make a great plot you should you should send that into hollywood oh yeah send that out to marvel for their next uh yeah. their next movie idea the reluctant superhero. Yeah. <laughs> well, last week in our conversation, we were looking at chapters 9 and 10 of Romans, and we were talking about whether the plans and promises of God had failed, given the reality that many Jews had not believed in Christ at the time that Paul was writing. And this week, we are looking at chapter 11 and talking about the Lord's continued pursuit of his people. So as we mentioned last week, there remains a hope for Israel. Paul begins chapter 11 by asking, has God rejected his people? So Phil, what do we find when we look at the opening section of chapter 11? Well, in the the first six verses here of chapter 11, Paul basically says, we know God hasn't rejected the Jewish people because there are, in fact, Jewish Christians. Uh, The majority of Jews may have rejected the gospel, but God in his grace has chosen to lead uh, a remnant uh, to faith in Christ, and and the church was witnessing that remnant coming to faith in Christ in Paul's own day. Yeah, that remnant chosen by grace uh, that Paul talks about in verse 5, that chosen by grace is really such an important thing. The relationship between God's election and his grace is really important for us to understand. Paul has talked about this uh, for a considerable uh, time, teaching, you know, God's choosing of a people is not disconnected from his grace. And in fact, 
could go so far as to say election and grace are inseparable. Both are evidence that salvation is God's work alone apart from works, as we've discussed again and again throughout this series. And so this is really important for us to understand because if God's choosing of Israel were based on their works instead of his grace, we would have reason to worry, right? We too would look at the present state of Israel and we would begin to question God's promises. But instead, we can have confidence that God's promises will be fulfilled because God's choosing of Israel, God's choosing of anyone, uh, is ultimately in accordance with his grace. So in verse 11, Paul asks another question. Did they, meaning Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? What is Paul getting at when he asks this, and what's the answer to his question? Yeah, so... uh, you know, as we've as we just said, a remnant of the Jewish people had accepted the gospel in Paul's day, uh, but the vast majority hadn't. Uh, and earlier, Paul had said that this hardening was part of God's plan. So that raises the question: You know, why has God done this? Uh, was His sole or primary objective to trip up the Jewish people and cause them to to fall beyond any hope of redemption? And Paul says no. Uh, God, in fact, had a larger plan. His plan did include the hardening of the hearts of the Jewish people, but God's goal, goal in doing that was to extend salvation to the Gentiles, and in fact, embedded within that extension of salvation to the Gentiles was a catalyst that would eventually lead to blessing once again for the Jewish people. That's what Paul means uh, when he says that salvation uh, coming to the Jews uh, would, would uh, excuse me, uh, that's what he means by salvation coming to the Gentiles to make, the, make Israel envious. Um, as John Stott points out, Paul isn't talking about the kind of jealousy we typically think of where you want something that someone has that doesn't belong to you. Paul's hope is that the Jewish people would see the blessings that God was pouring out on the Gentiles and that they would want those blessings for themselves Uh, And that, in fact, could be theirs through faith in Christ. So even extending salvation to the Gentiles, God still had Israel in mind. So his his purpose in the hardening couldn't be um, uh, causing them to fall beyond any hope of redemption because God uh, had a plan for uh, turning that to blessing for them. Yeah, you might remember during our conversation on God's providence, we regularly talked about how throughout salvation history, it appeared as though the Lord's plan was in jeopardy. And this would be a similar situation of that, right? If, if Israel was God's chosen people, yet they were not believing in Christ and being saved, isn't the plan of God in jeopardy? Not exactly, as, as Paul is saying, right? In fact, God's plan has always been that salvation would come to the Gentiles and by hardening Israel, God is working to accomplish that very purpose. But again, just as you're saying, it's not as though he's forgotten Israel. He's still, uh, they're still very much uh, in his plans. And and in verse 12, Paul argues uh, that ultimately what is currently happening is beneficial for for, for all. Excuse me. He argues from the lesser to the greater by saying that if Israel's hardening brought salvation to the Gentiles, which is, of course, ultimately for the good of the Gentiles, surely their full inclusion, the full inclusion of Israel, as he says, will be for obviously their good, but also the good of all. And so you see uh, 
again, God is big enough to be able to hold both those things at, at once, right? And to be able to keep these two people groups in mind at the same time. Right. And, you know, the bottom line is Paul is essentially saying that this hardening of uh, the Jewish people is, is a temporary thing. And, and again, as we've said in a couple different ways here, um, God's plan includes um, something more for the nation of Israel in the future, which he refers to here as, as, as you said, the full inclusion. And Paul envisions this as being uh, uh, sort of a, a, a wondrous thing that, uh, that God would um, choose to, to bring uh, the Jewish people back to faith. And when that happens, it's, it's, it's going to be a, a momentous event. Right. Well, then moving on then in, in verse 16, Paul introduces two illustrations. He talks about dough and then branches. And then after that, in, in 17 to 24, he expounds upon the illustration of the root and branches to explain the relationship between the nation of Israel and the rest of the world or the Gentiles. So what is Paul teaching in this section? The imagery is intended to convey the idea that the holiness of part of something extends to, to the whole. And most commentators argue that the part here is a reference to the patriarchs. The basic point Paul is making with both metaphors is uh, that the blessings and special relationship God had established with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob extended to Israel as a whole, and therefore God would never reject them. As a result, the hardening of the Jewish people, uh, as we just mentioned, was necessarily a temporary one. And that means there was reason to hope and look for a day when God would reverse that hardening and bless Israel again. Paul then builds on that root imagery to warn Gentile Christians against taking pride in their current status, uh, thinking that they were better than the Jews. Paul reminds them that Gentiles were not originally part of God's chosen people. They were grafted in, as it were, by God's grace through faith. As a result, Gentile Christians don't have anything to boast about. It was all God's doing. And more than that, the Jewish people, the original re recipients of God's promises through the patriarchs, can once again share in God's blessing uh, if they too come to faith. And in light of what Paul has said about God not rejecting Israel, there is good reason to look for that to, in fact, happen. Yeah, on the note of, of Paul warning the Gentiles against becoming arrogant or, or prideful, he does so a couple times in this section, but why? Well, verse 21 says, because if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And that maybe sounds like a threat, but what Paul's trying to get the Gentiles to understand is, look, if, if God was willing to, for you know his sovereign purposes, harden Israel, the natural branches in the analogy, uh, if if Israel was was led astray of of you know trying to achieve a righteousness by by works instead of by faith and therefore God hardens them that they would not believe uh, the same thing is is possible for you too right and so it's it's really an an exhortation to keep the faith um, but what Paul is also doing is reinforcing the foundation of grace within salvation uh, again Gentiles do not receive salvation because Israel failed and so. 
Now God sees them as the quote-unquote better people. What they received, they received by grace and grace alone. And because God is graceful, he is not done with Israel, as verses uh, 23 and 24 talk about. Um, and Paul is saying, look, if, if the Gentiles received salvation, even though they are not the chosen people, right, surely God has the power to save his chosen people. So the lesson really is, is, is don't stray from faith. Don't see yourself as better or now, you know, take this thing that you've received and make it about yourself, make it about uh, your works, about, oh, God must have chosen us now because we are the better people. Remember that salvation is by grace and grace alone. Right. That's the theme that runs throughout the entire uh, book of Romans is that uh, there's no status that earns you salvation. There's no amount of works that earns one salvation. It's grace, God's grace extended to us that we accept through faith. And um, if the Gentiles think differently, Paul's saying that's, that's dangerous because if you start focusing on your own status um, as Gentile believers, or if you start thinking that you've done something and that you have something to boast about, um, you're no longer exercising faith. And if faith is the key, uh, that that's a problem. So yeah, th- he's, he's warning them here um, and reminding them that they, they there's, there's nothing that they have to boast about because again, it's all God's doing. Exactly. Well, in verse 25, Paul starts talking about the quote-unquote mystery of Israel's salvation. So what does he mean by mystery, and how are we then to interpret the following verses through verse 32? So Paul has just warned Gentile Christians against becoming arrogant. Um, To further explain why they shouldn't be arrogant, Paul shares what he calls a mystery. And Paul doesn't mean that that this is something that Uh, We have to figure out, like a detective, by putting various clues together. Rather, for Paul, a mystery is something we previously didn't understand about God's plan, but which God has now revealed to us. So what's this mystery? Well, Paul says the mystery is that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles uh, had come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, Paul has already explained that God's plan included a hardening of the Jewish people, and as a result, the majority were rejecting the gospel. So there's really nothing new in in the first part of Paul's statement there. So where does the mystery come in? Let's jump to what Paul says at the end of verse 26. All Israel will be saved. So what does he mean by all Israel? Well, he can't mean every single person within Israel throughout all time because Paul has already explained that many of them have rejected the gospel. Some think that all Israel here is a way of referring to all true believers. And Paul does sometimes use the term Israel in this uh, symbolic or metaphorical sense. But as uh, Douglas Moo and other commentators point out, In this chapter, and really in chapters 9 through 11 as a whole, Paul is drawing a pointed distinction between Gentiles 
and the nation of Israel. In other words, there's an ethnic or national connotation to the term throughout these chapters. That makes it much more likely that Paul here is referring to the nation of Israel in verse 26 rather than a symbolic Israel. But if that's the case, how can he say all Israel will be saved if so many had rejected the gospel? Well, Paul is picturing a time when God would soften the hearts of the majority of Jews. So many would turn back to God and accept the gospel that Paul could fairly say, at that time, all Israel will be saved. We often use all or everyone in, this, in a similar way. Imagine a, a famous superstar is coming to your hometown. Uh, maybe David, for example, is, is broadcasting the podcast from, from your, <laughs> your hometown. And in response, you might say the entire city is excited. Uh, could there be a few people who don't care? Sure, but the fact is there are so many people who are excited that it is appropriate to say that the entire city is excited. Uh, we would know what you mean. The majority who are excited are more re representative of the city than the few who aren't. That's essentially what Paul is doing here. He is picturing a day when so many in the nation of Israel were will turn to Christ that he can appropriately describe it as all Israel being saved. So let's go back and put this together with verse 25. Paul says that the hardening of Israel would last until the full number of Gentiles had come in. That is, when the preordained number of Gentiles had entered God's kingdom. At that future point in time, God would work in the hearts of the Jewish people so that the vast majority of them will turn to Christ at that time and be saved. So what's the mystery in all of that? There are a number of references in the Old Testament to the Gentiles being added to God's kingdom. So is this really anything new? Well, yes, as multiple commentators point out, the mystery has to do with the order of events. The Jewish expectation was that the Jewish people would be entering the kingdom of God, and then God would do a work such that Gentiles would join them in the last days. The mystery that Paul is revealing is that the sequence is reversed. God's eschatological, esch <laughs> his yeah, plans one. for the last time, uh, that's a little tongue-tied there, uh, but God's plan for the last times, as uh, Moo says, involves setting aside the majority of Jews while Gentiles streamed in to enjoy the blessing of salvation, and that only when that stream had been exhausted would Israel as a whole experience these blessings. Now, so that's the mystery, but why does Paul think that would act as a check against the pride on the part of Gentile Christians? Well, given the present hardening of Jewish hearts, it would be tempting for Gentile Christians to think that they were superior and that God had rejected the Jewish people. But Paul wants Gentile believers to understand that God hasn't forgotten his promises. The present hardening of the Jewish people is temporary. That hardening had the result of causing Gentiles to experience the blessings of salvation, but that doesn't mean they have a superior status. God is one day going to remove the hardening, which will allow the Jewish people to again stream into the kingdom in the same way the Gentiles were doing in Paul's day. So th there's a lot there, uh, but that's the basic idea that Paul is picturing this day 
when God would do a work and the majority of Jews would once again be entering God's kingdom because they would be putting their faith in Christ. Thanks for walking us through that. I think that was a, a, a very, very helpful explanation of yeah, what the Lord is doing, you know, in this present day. Uh, and, you know, I think it is surprising uh, kind of us with the Gentiles would kind of, I think, be surprised by God promising to show mercy uh, in the future to Israel. I think when we, you know, in a similar way to the Gentiles, kind of as, as we come to belief and, and in some ways have to fight our own pride and arrogance, you know, we look at Israel and we read the Old Testament and we go, man, how come they, they just couldn't put it all together? And, you know, it's, it, man, they just, you know, a bunch of idiots out there, you know, not know what they're doing. And, and I think it's then surprising to us to hear there's, there's grace coming. Uh, there's a, there's a future for Israel and, and what that looks like, I know, I don't know. Uh, but the reality is surely just as, as we've talked about, if, if God could show grace uh, such that people who were not his, his chosen people uh, would come to faith in Christ, surely he is able to show mercy uh, to his chosen people again, as we, we discussed last week, right? He, uh, God is such that he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And I think that's where, you know, verses 29 to 31 uh, are really important as well after this. Uh, as Paul continues on, you know, verse 29 talks about how God's choosing and calling are irrevocable. Uh, so therefore, if God has called Israel his people, he will not renege on his saving promises. Right? And again, that, that whole, has the word of God failed? No. No, it hasn't. For God to do that would mean he would literally have to uh, no longer be faithful to himself. And that's something that God can't do. And, and, you know, and then in verses 30 and 31, Paul discusses how the Gentiles were, were disobedient and have now received mercy. Again, is he saying, look, don't be prideful because you just remember who you were. Right, you were sons of, of disobedience, right? Children of wrath. He calls us in, in Ephesians two, uh, and he goes on to say a similar thing about Israel that they too have been disobe- disobedient in order that they too would receive mercy. So, what's the logic in this except for God's grace, right? What's the logic in in God showing mercy to sinful, broken people? It's, it's his grace, and it, it is always surprising in that sense. We are by nature undeserving of salvation, and yet the Lord, because of his grace, allows us to come to faith, uh, is, you know, shows mercy on us. And so I think as there's a caution towards the Gentiles, as, as Paul is saying this about becoming prideful and arrogant, I think we too need to be cautious about presuming uh, how expansive or or maybe not, uh, the grace of God will be. That there, there is some extent to which the grace of God will always surprise us because he is much more merciful uh, than we are, right? We, we tend to look at it like, Israel, you know, you messed up, now I'm done with you. And right, that's, that's not ultimately what, what the Lord is doing here. Right. You know, if we step outside of sort of the larger categories of Gentile and Israel uh, and, and 
think on a more personal level, there, there's no one that is beyond God's grace. Uh, and if that's true, um, you know, God can work in the hearts of anyone to, to lead them to faith in Christ. And um, then as, as we step back, if that's true, and we look at uh, God's promises to Israel, there's no reason to think that they had somehow uh, fallen beyond God's grace. Um, you know, as you pointed out, he, he, Paul tells the Gentiles, you know, you were once, you know, uh, sinners, uh, you, you know, you, you were not following God, but God extended his grace to you and you've received mercy even though you were disobedient. So there's nothing in principle to say that that same uh, logic shouldn't apply to Israel. And actually, when you think about the promises, it seems even more likely that God would be willing to extend his grace to the people of Israel. So kind of when you pull all of that together, that's why, why you get this picture that Paul is painting of a day in the future when God will reverse this hardening and the, the people of Israel once again turn to him and, uh, and, and respond, you know, with faith to the gospel. Um, you know, that's part of God's eschatological plan. See, I do know how to say it. Um, <laughs> you know, once out of every three tries, I guess. But, uh, uh, but that, that's, that's what Paul is picturing here, that, that day. And as, as we look to that day, it's a reminder that there's nobody uh, that's beyond God's grace. And it's a reminder to us uh, to, to stay in that grace by recognizing um, that it is, in fact, grace and that we ex- we, all we can do is accept it by faith. Yeah, and then as we as we close this chapter, we get this great insight, and you see the Apostle Paul even even doing that, right? It, as he as he looks toward that day, as he uh, just reflects upon who the Lord is, he ends the chapter in verses thirty three to thirty six by praising the Lord. Uh, so, what does this section then teach us? Yeah, so Paul has been teaching in chapters. 9 through 11, and really throughout the entire uh, book, uh, he's been teaching us about God's redemptive plan. And and in doing so, he's unfolding the depths of God's wisdom as it's displayed in that redemptive plan uh, to to save all of humanity, both Jews and Gentiles. So as, as Paul reflects on that, he can't help but praise God for it. Um, And uh, in commenting on the implications of Paul's uh, praise here, John Stott says something that I think is is an important reminder. He says, theology, our belief about God, and doxology, our worship of God, should never be separated. On the one hand, there can be no doxology without theology. It is not possible to worship an unknown God. All true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture. On the other hand, there should be no theology without doxology. There is something fundamentally flawed about a purely academic interest in God. True knowledge of God will always lead us to worship. 
And that's exactly Paul's response here. God's revelation of his plan to save humanity leads Paul to worship here at the end of chapter 11. Yeah, I love that. It's the the outpouring of praise for the God who authored this plan from before the beginning of the world. Right? Everything we've discussed from chapter chapters 1 to 11 here is is Paul is unpacking the gospel, right? What's the response? Worship. Uh, and that that quote by Stott uh, is is so right on in 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 just the the relationship between worship and and theology that the Ultimately, that's the goal of theology. It isn't uh, to to accrue head knowledge about God, but it ultimately leads us to worship. That you know, ultimately, it's what we want resources like this podcast to be about. That they would ultimately lead you uh, to to worship Him. And um, Paul actually quotes from Isaiah and Job as he considers the magnificence of God. All His ways are far beyond our understanding, and therefore, God is deserving of all. The glory, and I think it's interesting too that he that he notes from those specific places because even as we talk about mystery here, right? That there's going to be elements of God's uh, God's plan that we don't fully understand, right? As humans, and but that's not the 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 qualification for worship, right? That's not uh, there's not this bar saying, hey, you need to in, you need to understand this much in order to worship me. Uh, Paul is saying even in the midst of of certain unknowns. Uh, if we don't know certain intricacies, um, praise is still the natural result. Uh, and so, you know, again, it, that's really what this is about, as we've discussed many times, that even though we might not understand every aspect of how all of God's salvation plan fits together, we can still trust him and praise him because he is wise, faithful, and good. Yeah, so, I mean, if we put this in the context of the entire uh, book thus far, you know, we start off with um, all of humanity under God's judgment. And we end chapter 11 with people from every nation being saved from that judgment as a result of what Christ has done for them. Uh, you know, that is something to be excited about, that, that God has made that possible. And, and again, so, um, you know, Paul is responding that there's, there's nobody beyond, nobody thought God's grace would be extended to the Gentiles, but here we are. God has, in fact, brought salvation to the Gentiles. And then maybe it seems like Israel has turned... Uh, it's back on God, and, and they're beyond redemption. But Paul says here, nope, that's not the case. God has a plan, and he's going to work it out. So you know, even though Israel has turned away, they will once again uh, turn back to God. So again, Paul, Paul is excited about that because those are uh, biblical principles, the, theological uh, teachings, but they're not just dry words on a page. It's... God's redemptive plan that he's working out in history. And again, Paul is excited and he wants us to feel that as well. Mm, amen. Well, we'll pause the discussion here for today. Phil, as always, thank you so much for all of your thoughts and wisdom. Well, where are we going from here? So we've just talked about how uh, these first 11 chapters have unpacked the doctrines of salvation. Uh, but again, it's not just about 
head knowledge. The gospel isn't just something to believe, uh, but something that also ought to transform us. And so next week, we're going to summarize the last large section of the book of Romans. It's chapters 12 to chapters 15. Again, you're thinking, buckle up, save a little extra time. David and Phil might go a little long. Uh, hopefully, we can we can keep it pretty reasonable. Um, but again, we'll be talking about how does the gospel transform us such that our lives look different as a result of following Christ. And so this will be the final episode in this series on the book of Romans, and we'll be asking how the gospel, everything that Paul has explained uh, thus far, ought to be lived out in our lives. So please join us for that discussion. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Park City Podcast. We hope this resource helps you to see and savor God's goodness, beauty, and grace in your life. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.parkcitychurch.net. Once again, thanks for listening.